printed form, you can see that we're going to be referencing quite a few passages this morning, uh, but you can certainly uh, start out there and we'll sort of move around from there. It's probably safe to say that if you were to categorize sermon topics according to the number of sermons preached on any one topic, love would certainly be in the top ten. This will be our third message on love this month. Reverend Sutherland, uh, earlier in the month, preached on the steadfast love of the Lord. Um, I preached on the need to add brotherly love or affection to our faith last week. And today, we come to the call to add love to all men, uh, to the graces that we seek to develop uh, from the Holy Spirit. There are, of course, many reasons why there are so many sermons on this topic. But simply put, it's an important part of the character of the Christian. And it permeates the Word of God. There are over 600 verses defining with some aspect of love, either in a positive or a negative way, what love is and how it ought to be shown. But it's in regard to its link to the Christian's Christian's character that it plays its most vital part. Now, almost all Christians of any experience and many people who are not Christians are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 starts out by saying, If I speak in, uh, with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all, ministry, uh, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Further down in that passage at the very end, in verse 13, it says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, this is perhaps the the most popularly known statement of the the character of love. But it's hardly the only one, of course. John says famously in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I don't think anything can be quite clear than that 8th verse. Um, If you don't love, you don't know God, because God is love. I don't think anything could be clearer. But it goes on in this chapter. John goes on in this chapter, and he says then in verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And again, you have statements about love in there that are without 
Question. <laughs> They're not hard to understand. They're not difficult to grasp. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. You know, you can put that proverbial question, what part of this do you not understand? Um, it's all quite clear what it says. And then that last part, where he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, although there have been many sermons on love, this isn't just another sermon on love. It's a sermon on making our calling and election sure and certain in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know that we're properly equipped to be able to go out into the world and lovingly share the gospel, the greatest love story of all. We're, we're talking about having a part in that story for ourselves, a real, actual um, uh, a part in that story so that when we go out and share it with others we can do it in that spirit and with that kind of conviction the scripture makes it clear that Christ-like love for others is not a natural thing it's not just a nice thing it's not even an optional thing it is a necessary thing Christ-like love for others is necessary. And it gives three reasons why that is so. That is, the Scripture not doesn't list them as three reasons, but as you work your way through Scripture, you find those three reasons obvious. It's necessary for what we might call three great reasons. The first one is because it is natural to the one who is born of the Spirit. By saving faith in Jesus Christ. The person who's a new creature in Christ Jesus to that person, this is natural, this love of others, this Christ-like love of others. We just read a few moments ago what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 and verse 44 of Matthew. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who was in heaven do this so that you can reflect the fact that you are the sons and daughters of your father in heaven that's why Jesus makes the point he says love your enemies so that you can reflect your father in heaven and you can demonstrate that you are the sons and daughters of your father in heaven for he uh, makes it for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, I don't want to scare any of you children here today, but I want to let you in on a little secret. The older you get, the more you'll find yourself doing little things your parents do some of which seem pretty weird to you right now. I hate to tell you that, but it's the truth. Uh, it's a genetic and environmental thing. In other words, partly because you're so closely related and partly because being around them makes an imprint on you, even if you don't want it to, it does. And the other day I was sitting on the couch rubbing my head like this, 
because I had a headache over my right eye and I suddenly realized how many times I had seen my father sitting in this chair in the living room with his hand on his head rubbing it just like that. Um, when I look in the mirror, I see the undeniable shadow of my father as he looked 20 years ago. Paul told the Romans that, and this is Romans 8.29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When we put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we become his by faith, there becomes a reflection in us of who he is, which involves this love for all men. Paul expounded on this in his letter to the Ephesians. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says put that on. Put on that new nature. And that new nature is the one that conforms to the image of Christ. And the image of Christ that's before us in the word of God is one of love. When you who believe were made new creatures in Christ, the presence of the Spirit in you made it a natural thing that you should not only have love for the brethren, that is your, your fellow believers, but for all men and women. You're now the children of your Father in heaven. And it's perfectly natural that you should reflect in your attitude towards all his creatures a decided love. Not a casual or, or occasional love, but a decided and deliberate love. Remember what John said in, in 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. If you don't have this character of love for all men, in a sense, you don't know God. Because God is love. It's not merely of God as every good gift of, is of God. It is of God as being his own property, his own affection, his own love. It is wherever it is found, the very love wherewith God loves. If it is found in me, it is my loving with the very love with which God loves. It is my loving with a divine love, a love that is thus emphatically of God, says Candlish. It's such a natural thing, such a necessary thing in that sense, that Peter offers it as a check by which you and I can be sure of our redemption in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as John does here. He's, this is such a natural thing. It's such an appropriate thing for the believer that you can pull this out as a check to determine your own place in Christ. Is this love present in my life? Well, if it is, then I am in Christ. Adam says, There can be no assurance to your soul that you are in God's favor without love. 
So it's necessary from that standpoint because it's a natural thing for us. Secondly, it's necessary because Christ your King commands it. It's a command to faithful believers in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, verse 17 is where we first ran into this as a command. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And if you say, oh, well, that's referring to our brothers and sisters in Christ, you just have to come down to the 34th verse, where this commandment goes on, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now you're to love not only those you know, and those that are your brothers and sisters in Christ, but even strangers in your midst you to love. And then it's commanded of those who are his in the New Testament everywhere. Jesus again from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you're new creatures in Christ, then he's not only your Savior, but Jesus Christ is your Lord. And as such, he not only has the right to command you and me, but there is in us, as his people, as his own people, an anxiousness and a desire to obey. That's a part of our being new creatures in Christ Jesus. This anxiousness and this desire and this readiness and this willingness to do what he commands us to do. Our new nature, in contradiction to our old one, that never wanted to know and never wanted to obey the word of God, is now eager to know what the will of the Lord is, and it's strengthened to be conformed to it. That's the true spirit and character of those who are born again. They want to be commanded by Christ. They want to take those commands and give obedience to them. That's the character of the new life that we have in Christ. So this is necessary, this love for all men, not just because it's our nature, but because we are commanded by our King to do it. When Paul was describing his own conversion on the road to Damascus, he says that after he knew it was the Lord Jesus speaking to him, do you remember what his first question was? Right. What shall I do, Lord? What will you have me to do? That was the first question out of his mouth. When he was flung to the ground and realized that he was in the presence of Christ and that Christ had shown him this mercy, his question was, what do you want me to do? And it's vitally important that we not delude ourselves in regards to either of these matters. If we've been merely going through life without the evidence of this desire to love others, 
which is born of the Spirit, then we need to pause and take stock. It's the only safe thing to do. To pause and take stock. Is it just a, a lack of knowledge? And there were a spiritual sluggishness that's kept us from earnestly seeking to add this to our faith? Or is it something more serious? If it's a matter of understanding or simple laziness, then we need to repent and seek forgiveness in Christ and get about attending to the matter. That's what Peter's saying here. Put the effort in. To add them to your faith, this love for others. But if it's more serious than that, you need to take immediate measures to further make your calling and election sure and do it now. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then we must cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So it's natural to us as we're reborn in Jesus Christ. It is commanded of us by our King. Thirdly, it's necessary because it is required if we are going to try and reach the lost to reach out to those who are living in sin and darkness. How many of you ever said something like this? You realize I'm only doing this because I love you, right? How many of you ever said that? I really want to see how many, how many have said that. Yeah, a lot of us have said that. I'm only doing this because I love you. I say that in regards to broccoli when I eat it. It's usually attached to some chore or activity that's despised by you in some way. Maybe it's something that scares you or makes you uncomfortable or it's just distasteful in some way. But you agree to do it out of love. Aren't those, beloved, the same reasons why most Christians are slow to reach out into the dark world with the light of the gospel. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. And sometimes it is distasteful. Here is my enemy, and I have to reach out to him in love in the name of Christ. And just like it is when we say that in the context of uh, family situations or whatever, isn't it love 
that quenches fear. Isn't it love that makes the uncomfortable tolerable? And isn't it love that sweetens the most sour situation? And you see, beloved, if you don't have love for these people that you're reaching out to, you'll be hampered by all those things, fear and and discomfort and distaste. And it'll keep you from doing what your Savior commands you to do. And so if you have that spirit of love, which is born of the Spirit, it overcomes all those things and you're able to reach out with the light of the gospel into a dark and dying world. This is why love has to be a part of, of the driving force in the matter. Love to God first, and then love to your fellow man. A passionate spirit-born love for your Savior. That's what produces a love for others, which is born by that same spirit working in you. When you look out on the lost, fatally fumbling about in the dark, through the eyes of the Savior, like Him, you'll be filled with compassion. If you look at it through your own eyes, you'll be saying things like, why are these people so foolish? Why are they so wicked? Why are they so bad? But if you look at them through the eyes of the Savior, you'll have compassion. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, He saw a great crowd before Him, and He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Many things relating, of course, to the gospel. So it's for these three great reasons we say that the scripture makes it clear that Christ-like love for others is not a natural thing, it's not a nice thing, it's not even an optional thing, but it is a necessary thing. Now, when we turn to First Peter, or rather Second Peter, chapter one, we're confronted with Peter's urging, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for you and me to add a spirit of love, this spirit of love, to our faith. So we start with verse two, for Second uh, Peter, chapter one, verse two. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at this matter of love in the context of this verse, we must first understand why it's distinguished from brotherly affection. 
And then, why we ought to make every effort to supplement our faith with this love. Now, books, papers, and sermons, probably thousands of sermons, have dealt with the differences between the sort of love referred to in the case of demonstrating brotherly love and the agape love that is required here. Let me just say, for our purposes today, that the love referred to here, that we're to have for mankind in general, has three distinctive qualities important to the context. First, it is decided. There is election involved. I elect to love in this case. I make a conscious determination to love the lost, to love all men, women, and children. I make a decided effort to do it. In brotherly affection, you have a mystical union in Christ that fuels the love there. We spoke of that last week. It's drawn out of your hearts by your relationship to Christ and in him your relationship to your Christian brothers and sisters. In this case, however, there's no mystical union. There's a connection by natural birth. Those outside of Christ are still our brothers and sisters in that sense. But once we're reborn in Jesus Christ, great differences immediately appear. We have different values. We are different in so many ways, and we're on very different paths in life. All the things we had in common in Adam in the fall begin to dissolve, and there arises an aversion to those things. Even a temptation, not born of the spirit, but of the flesh, to despise and to hate those who are without God in the world. And it's, it's a natural reaction to that aversion. We're not, we don't have the same values anymore. We aren't on the same path in life anymore. We don't see the world and the things in it in the same way any longer. And as that separation becomes more and more distinct, the temptation arises to despise those who are in the world. So much misunderstanding about this, beloved, has caused a great deal of confusion in the minds of believers and a resentment of the Christian by those who are outside of Christ. And that's why we have to get this right. Essential in understanding the matter is the realization that the love called for here involves making a decision. It is electing to love a person. Not because they're lovable in any way, but because you choose to do so just as God chose to love you. Isn't that why you're saved this morning? you who are believers because God chose to love you even though you were not lovable 
That's a basic doctrine of the scripture that we teach and, and we rejoice in. That we were elected in love because God chose to love us. The scripture makes that abundantly clear. It's not because you first loved him, but because he first loved you when you were unlovable. So now if you're going to reflect that kind of love in your life, it has to have that same spirit. That it has nothing to do with whether the person is lovable or not. It's because you choose to love them in Christ's name. The second aspect is this. It's expressive. That is, it demonstrates itself. This kind of love we're talking about here doesn't just sit dormant. It expresses itself. And it brings you right back to our overarching theme that we've been working from. From 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. One of my favorite scenes from the Andy uh, Griffith show is from a warm summer Sunday afternoon. And a, a busy businessman has been detained by car trouble in the sleepy town of Mayberry. And Andy, Barney, and the agitated visitor have just finished one of Aunt B's comfort food meals and they're lounging on the porch. And Barney, rendered almost comatose by the meal in the warm afternoon, says three or four times what his plans are for the rest of the day. I think I'll go home, take a nap, get some ice cream, go to my girlfriend Thelma Lou's house, and watch TV. And barely awake, he slurs out those plans over and over. And finally, the exasperated man from New York yells at him, Just do it! Just do it! Get up! Go home! Take a nap! Get the ice cream! Go to Thelma's Lose! Watch TV! Just do it, man! Because he's just sitting there on the porch, slurring out his intentions. You see, the resolve of Barney to do these things was brought into question by the visitor because there was no action with a stated intention. And that's the thing, beloved, with agape love. It's more than intention. It is action. And you cannot say you are exercising agape love if all you do is lounge around and say, I love others, but never do anything to demonstrate or to show that love. Agape love determines to love and then acts on that determination. It doesn't dreamily contemplate what might be done. It gets up and it acts on the elected intention. And thirdly, it's diffusive. It works every way and everywhere that it can. This is the sort of activity that becomes those who are, as Ephesians 2.10 says, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Agape love doesn't sit on the porch and say, well, you know, someday I'm going to go out there and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do those things that God calls on me to do in regards to loving others. Someday I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going, one of these days I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something. Agape love doesn't do that because it's driven by the Spirit of God. To Titus, Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, where the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are to sit on the porch and wait for things to get better. Now what it says, doesn't it? Yes, to be zealous of good works. And I want to be careful about this point because it's too easy to dismiss any effort if we make it something beyond us in our strength and our ability. Perhaps I can put it this way. There's a common saying, inch by inch, any job's a cinch. The idea is that when you break down a job into what you can handle, you can make progress. But too many people look on the enormity of this job and they become frozen and inert. They pull out something like, don't I have to be able to explain every doctrine in the Bible before I can go out and share the gospel with anybody? Because what if they ask me something I don't know? So, I'll do it, but I need to know more. I need to learn more. I need to get more experience. You see how that just creates inertia? You just grind to a halt by that. There's so many people. There's so many out there. How do I pick one? I mean, who do I go to with the gospel? There's so many people who need it. And they don't want to hear it. You know, they really don't want to hear it. In fact, they might even get mad at me if I say something to them. So I better just sit on the porch and say, I love them. But, you know, and, and maybe someday I'll get up and do something, but the job's just too big. I can't get to it. When we say that this elected love is diffusive and works every way and where it can, we mean exactly that. Not looking at the whole lost world and saying, what could I possibly do about that? I might as well do nothing but looking at it in light of what you can do through the Lord Jesus Christ who strengthens you and then doing it. Adams says, we are now got to the roof of the spiritual house, charity or love. This, the highest round or rung of the ladder. There will be eight. This is the uppermost, as nearest to heaven. It has a further extent than Philadelphia. That is only to brethren in the same faith. This is to all, even to
to my enemies. Now we want to speak to the nature of this love, but that's too big of a bite to try to chew today, and we don't just want to take uh, it and go through it quickly and, and maybe miss something important, so we'll try to open that up next week, Lord willing. I want to make three final observations quickly. And I think they're things that we ought to make on the basis of what we've seen so far. The first one is this. What does this love for all men and women look like in your life? What part does it take? What priority does it hold? Jesus told the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2.19, I know your works, your love and faith and servants, service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. To be known in that way by the Savior is a worthy goal in life. There's all my past works, but what am I doing now to show my love and my faith in serving my Lord. Secondly, we're not offering this love as a way to earn eternal life or to gain the forgiveness of sins. Paul makes that quite plain in Galatians 2.16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There is no merit in showing this kind of love to others. It's our duty, brethren. It's our privilege. But it's not virtuous in the sense of earning merit with God. As the scripture says, after one has done all his or her duty, he or she should simply say, I am an unprofitable servant. I've only done what it was my duty to do. And lastly, if you're sitting here or you're watching and feeling a little uncomfortable because you either don't comprehend any spiritual desire to act upon this kind of love or because you just haven't bothered to act on what you know the Lord would have you to do, then this is the time to act. I would say with a businessman, just do it. To those with no perceptible desire, go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. And carry that burden to Him. And confess that this is one of the evidences of having real faith. And I don't see it in my life. And I need it to be there. And either I need it because I need to come to you as I never have before, or I need it because it needs to be there for the evidence of who I am in Christ. Come and find out why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You go to him in simplicity, and he promises that he will hear you.
To those with a desire, but no fire, seek forgiveness in Christ and pray for this gift. This is exactly what Peter means when he says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Wherever we come short in any of these things that are ours in Christ Jesus, we should pray for forgiveness, for not seeking them if we haven't, and then bury that under the blood of Christ and move forward and seek it and do it for the glory of God and for the comfort and consolation of our own souls and for the good of those poor lost souls dying in darkness without the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would encourage us in these things. Lord, you know the heart of everyone before you this morning, whether they're there online or whether they're here in the room. And Lord, where we have come short, we pray for forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would cultivate and develop this love for others. And Lord, uh, give us a deep and earnest love that will manifest itself in our loving, not in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here who cannot find even the spark of this love in their lives because they are not in Christ, that Lord, even now, this day, they would hear the call of the gospel. Come forward and seek from you redeeming grace that they might have this new nature in Christ Jesus and have infused into their lives this love for others. Grant it, Lord, by your great grace, for your glory, for our blessing. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.